Well, what a precious song that is to sing. And whenever I hear that song or sing that song, I have this precious image that comes into my mind. And it's of a a dear gal that used to attend our church years ago and a young wife and mom. And um, she had just found out that her husband had abandoned her and uh, her and her kids and um, didn't want anything to do with them anymore. And uh, she was heartbroken, obviously. And I just remember when we were over in the worship center, when we used to meet there for church, uh, we were singing the song and I just happened to look over at her and she was just sobbing, just weeping uncontrollably. And I knew why. Because that song was exactly what she needed to be singing at that moment, right? All I need, all I trust, right, is the deep, deep love of Jesus. Because most everybody else's love for us is going to fail at some point. Isn't that right? Your love for them fails. Their love for us fails, right? That's just human love, the nature of human love. It's... uh, It's not eternal like God's is. And so I trust that song was a blessing to you. And I trust this text will be a blessing to all of us. And this message, as we wrap up Romans chapter 8, will serve us well this morning. Romans chapter 8, if you've got your Bibles, turn there with me. And I want to reread our text that we started last week. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses thirty. 1 to 39. This is the grand crescendo of everything Paul has said up to this point uh, in the book of Romans. And so let me read this and we'll pray and talk about it. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. This is where we left off last week, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, what a tremendous truth. Would you, by your Spirit, help us to get our minds around the magnitude of your love for us and that it would change the way we think, it would change the way we live. 
We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been working our way verse by verse through Romans 8, I mentioned, I know a couple of times that this is the greatest chapter in the book of Romans. And I also realize I've said more than on more than one occasion, this is the greatest passage. This is the greatest verse in this chapter. Well, just so you know, I'm not schizophrenic or anything, set the record straight, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the gifted British doctor turned preacher, said that the greatest book or greatest chapter or passage in the Bible should always be the one being studied or taught at the moment. And so that's probably why I feel that way when I get up after studying a text all week and then getting up and wanting to share it with you. It's like, hey, this is it. This is the most important text on the planet, most important text in the Bible. And I'm sure we'd all agree that Romans 8 is a great chapter. Some would say it's one of the greatest chapters or at least greater than most chapters in the Bible. Some even say it is the greatest chapter of all, not just in Romans, but in the entire Bible. Providentially, I received an email this week from Ligonier Ministries with the subject, what is the greatest chapter in the Bible? Piqued my interest. And so I read the email, and it was promoting a video study by uh, Derek Thomas, who is the senior minister of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. He's a professor of systematic pastoral theology at RTS in Atlanta and one of the Ligonier teaching fellows. And guess what? It it's the study is on Romans 8, and he says that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Let me just read for you a portion of the email. Romans 8 has almost everything. It begins with our justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It continues with sanctification and the work of the Holy Spirit and then speaks about our adopted sonship with the Father, the significance of suffering, the prospect of glory, the final redemption of our bodies, and the restoration of all creation. It reassures us that as we wait for our resurrection and final transformation, the Spirit helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us. It teaches us about the good and sovereign providence of God in our lives and that His goal is to transform us into the likeness of Christ. Indeed, Paul says, nothing can stop God from bringing that to pass. No one can successfully oppose us, bring any charge against us, condemn us, or finally separate us from God's love for us in Christ. And then this is how the email ended. This is breathtaking theology. It is the theology of these verses that put backbone into Paul's life and it can put backbone into our lives too. I like that. We all need some, we all need a theological back, backbone to hold us up. And especially in light of recent examples of, of so-called believers not showing any backbone by walking away from Christ. Just this week, another well-known influential leader in the church, this time a songwriter and a worship leader, confessed on social media that he was losing his Christian faith. Quote, losing his Christian faith. He told his Instagram followers that Christianity is not for me and it just seems to me like another religion at this point. Now he made it clear that he hadn't renounced his faith but said it was, quote, 
on incredibly shaky ground, end quote. So while others are wavering in their faith and, and caving into the pressures around them, it's very comforting and reassuring for us to hear from a stalwart of the Christian faith who stood strong in the midst of all sorts of temptations and tribulations and made it to the end of his life and was able to say just before he died, I have fought the what? Good fight. I finished the course and I have what? Kept the faith. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7. Now, Paul wasn't tooting his own horn to Timothy there as if he had stayed saved by his own strength or his own effort. We know that's not true because here in Paul's letter to the believers in Rome, he made it crystal clear that our eternal security is not based on what we do, but on what Christ has done and continues to do for us. Paul was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was nothing in the entire universe that could ever thwart God's sovereign plan of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that there was never any question in his mind that he would make it home to heaven safe and sound. As you can see, I chose to title this text, Safe and Sound. It's a phrase that we typically use when we end a dangerous trip. We text someone or call someone and say, hey, just want you to know we made it home safe and sound. In other words, we made it home free from injury or without any accidents. And if you've been tracking with Paul here in Romans chapter 8, you know that Paul does not have a Pollyanna perspective on the Christian life. He painted a very realistic picture of what it's like to live as a Christian in a sin-cursed body, in a sin-cursed world. It makes for a very hard, hazardous journey filled with all sorts of distractions and difficulties, which not only makes us long for heaven, but it also makes us wonder at times if we'll actually get there in one piece, if at all. And Paul wanted those of us who trust in Christ alone for salvation to know that we are secure in Christ and that we can be absolutely certain that God will finish what he started no matter what. And so here in these nine verses, there are four reassuring realities based on the past substitutionary work of Christ and the present intercessory work of Christ that remove our doubts and relieve our fears that for some reason we might not make it home to heaven safe and sound. These four realities are based on a, a flurry of rhetorical questions that Paul fired off in these last in this last section, in order to, to highlight the glorious and the triumphant implications of our great salvation. And again, I mentioned this last week, but I think we should all consider ourselves as if we're sitting back at the end of a fireworks show during that grand finale where, where they just go, they, they, they just let it all loose, right? They just fire everything off. They get everything left, they just fire it all off. And it just... 
and it's just this cacophony of booms and, 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 and sights and sounds, and we just, everybody oohs and ahs, and, and that's kind of what Paul wants us to do. He just wants us to ooh and ah and go, wow, that is incredible. I can't believe that. Did you see that? Did you read that? Are you, are you Wow. So what are these four realities? Well, we began looking at them last week. Number one, we cannot be defeated by anyone. That's verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? There's no one stronger or greater than God, and therefore no one can thwart or destroy his plans for us or rob us of our salvation. That doesn't mean that we won't have to deal with enemies who will attempt to derail our faith. We've got the world and the flesh and the devil to to deal with, these formidable foes who are constantly opposing God and us, yet none of them will be able to defeat us. By the grace and power of God, we will ultimately prevail and triumph over them. So we cannot be defeated by anyone. Secondly, we cannot be deprived of anything. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So Paul reasoned here from the greater to the lesser that, that, that if God reconciled us to himself while we were his hated enemies, then why would he do anything less for us now that we are his beloved children? He's already given us the greatest treasure, his most prized possession, his beloved son, so that we could be saved. Well, certainly he'll give us everything else necessary to bring that salvation to completion. There's, there's absolutely no way that God would leave us stranded on the way to heaven after he has already sacrificed so much to save us. And so we cannot be deprived of anything. Thirdly, we cannot be denounced by anyone. We cannot be denounced by anyone, verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Paul's point is that no one is able to press charges against us since our crimes have already been paid for once and for all by Jesus on the cross. And God himself is the judge, and he's declared us righteous based on our faith in Christ. And so when we get saved and we repent of our sin and we place our faith in Christ, we are acquitted of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And so we can no longer be accused of any sin or sentenced to hell for any sin. That's essentially what Paul meant when he started this chapter in verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if that weren't enough, Paul went on to describe the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't just that he came to earth and died and rose again, went back to heaven, job's done, and he's just kicking back there waiting for, you know, God to give him the nod and the Father to give him the nod to go back, right, to come back and get us. No, he's actively serving as our advocate, our mediator at the right hand of the Father. And not only is he there to help us when we're tempted and tried, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4, our great high priest, but he's also there to help us when we're taunted or accused by Satan or other people or even our own conscience. 
When that happens, Christ steps up and he defends his followers before the Father and claims us as his own. And so we cannot be denounced by anyone. Well, there's a fourth reassuring reality. And if you ask me, Paul left the best for last. We cannot be detached from God's love by anyone or anything. Notice what he says in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then notice he answers the question in verse 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, I assume you know this, but just want to say it. Paul was not referring to our love for God. In other words, nothing could separate us from our love for God. The last time he mentioned this was in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So the emphasis there is on us loving God. That's a a fruit of our salvation that we love God because he first loved us. But here at the end of uh, this chapter, Paul is clearly referring to, to God's love for us. Nothing can separate us from God's love for us, which he demonstrated by sending his son to die in our place. Look back at Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Paul talked about how the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then he describes this love in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God, on the other hand, demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 says something very similar. By this, the love of God was manifested or shown or revealed in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins. So Paul is clearly thinking here as he writes this about God's love for us, not our love for God. Which is, by the way, the game changer, right? That we need to constantly be reminded as Christians that the Christian life is not about how much we love Jesus, but how much Jesus loves us, amen? And that's what he's getting at at this passage. He wants us to get it. 
Because up to this point, Paul has emphasized God's sovereignty, which we love. We love to hear about God's sovereignty and God's omnipotence. We love that, that the power of God and, and the, the God, it's God's sovereignty and God's omnipotence that is the basis of our eternal security. And we, we learned that back in verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. And the, these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And so we should think of our eternal security, the assurance of our salvation, right, as being based on the sovereignty of God and the power of God. But that's not all it's based on. And I would submit to you, based on the flow of this passage, that the main reason why we will make it to heaven safe and sound is because God loves us so much. In other words, our eternal security, our assurance that we're saved, and our confidence that we will go to heaven when we die is ultimately based not on the sovereignty of God, not on the power of God, but on the love of God. And one of the characteristics of God's love, we talk about the attributes of God, right? God is sovereign, God is gracious, God is merciful, God is faithful, God is just, God is holy, God is love. One of the characteristics of God's love, when you start breaking it out, breaking it down, is that his love is eternal. It lasts forever. He has always loved us and he will always love us. He loved us from the beginning in our election. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself. This was in eternity past. He was loving us. And he will love us to the end in our glorification. Jesus launched into the upper room discourse in John chapter 13, verse one, and this is what John recorded. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he, he loves us uh, from eternity past to eternity future. There's never been a time that he hasn't loved us. None of us have ever experienced that kind of love, right? Your spouse that you're sitting next to, you, you haven't loved them your entire life. Right? You didn't love them until you met them. And even then, you may have not liked them until you got to know them, right? And then you ended up loving them, right? But... The point is, we don't, we don't get, this is, this is beyond human comprehension, this kind of love. That's, that's, it's a forever, we talk about a forever, I found my forever love. Well, no, this is true forever love. In that same context, in the upper room, John 17, you know that Paul, or excuse me, Jesus ended that time with his disciples before they went out 
um, into the garden and, and he was betrayed by uh, Judas and arrested, he, he ended with this prayer, the high priestly prayer of Christ. And he's, he prayed some amazing things um, in the presence of his disciples. And, and he was praying for his disciples and he was praying for all the disciples who would come after them, including us. Listen to what he prayed for us 2,000 plus years ago in John 17, verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. He's talking to, to God the Father, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus said that the Father loved his disciples or loves the disciples even as he loves him. In other words, God loves you and me as much as he loves Jesus. You say, how is that possible? Well, the reason why we are as dear to God's heart as Christ is is because we have been adopted as God's sons and daughters and are therefore considered brothers and sisters of Christ, co-heirs with Christ. And guess what? The Father loves all of his kids the same. Granted, he is the exalted one, right? We, we learned that back in verse 29 that, that uh, ultimately our salvation is not about us, it's about Christ, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, but we need to let this sink in. I mean, again, this is, this is a deep, deep thought. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, uh, excuse me, what did I say? Philippians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul was praying in this context. Uh, we, we just heard what Jesus prayed. Now let's listen to what Paul prayed. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And here it is. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. In other words, God loves you and me more than we'll ever know. It's beyond comprehension. He loves us more than we'll ever know. Now, if you're a parent, you've probably said that to your kids. I, I love you more than you'll ever know. And, and it, probably in our minds, we're thinking, wait till you have kids and you might start getting it, right? But until you have kids, you don't really get it, right? But hey, we say that to our kids. You, you, man, I, we love you. I love you more than you'll ever know. And you've probably also told them, if they're in the teen years or beyond, you, you, don't, normally, you normally don't say this to your little ones because they they're not doing anything that necessarily would call into question your love for them, but as they get older, right, they start making decisions and choices, and, and sometimes we feel as parents it's the right thing to say, listen, there is nothing 
that you could ever do that would make me stop loving you. That will change my love for you. In other words, no matter what you do, I will always love you. Have you said that to your kids? If you haven't, you will. I guarantee you'll say that at some point. And if we being evil know how to love our children like this, that nothing you'll ever do will change my love for you, I'll always love you, you'll always be my child, you'll always be my kid. If we know how to love our children like this, then how much more will our heavenly father love us no matter what? And it helps to understand, and we're going to see this when we jump into chapter 9, that God set his love on us before we did anything, good or bad. So why would we think we could do something to make him stop loving us? I think one of the most refreshing and reassuring realities that has ever crossed my mind through sermons I've heard or books I've read is that we cannot do anything to make God love us any more or any less than he already does. That's a profound thought. Because we kind of live that way, don't we? I had my quiet time this morning. Man, it was really good and I had a good time in the word, a good time in prayer and, you know, oh, I got to you know, took advantage of that opportunity to witness to that guy at work. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't get mad at my kids today. And, you know, God must really love me today. Or you wake up late and you're rushed and you didn't have time to get in the word. And you, you, you said a few quick prayers on your way to work and, you know, or you yelled at the kids and, uh, you know, you, 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 you know, I don't know, flip somebody off on the, on the, <laughs> whatever, you know, man, God, man, he, he is not liking me right now. Mine, the love meter is just went down there. I got to build it back up. I got to do some stuff to kind of make them love me some more. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us any more or any less than he already does. And the reason, again, that we can know for sure that we will make it home to heaven safe and sound is because he loves us so much that he would never let anyone hurt us or anything happen to us. We've also said that, haven't we? We've said that maybe, you know, husbands to our wives. I'll never, never let anybody hurt you. I love you so much. I'll never, never, never let anybody hurt you. Or moms sometimes to their kiddos, hey, you know, I love you so much. I'll never let anything happen to you. I would never let anything bad happen to you. Problem is we lack the sovereignty and the power to pull that off. We might have great intentions. Hey, I love you so much. I'll never let anybody hurt you and, and uh, I'll never let anything happen to you. But let's face it, we can't deliver on that all the time. But God can and he will. Our safety and security in life and death 
is based on the fact that God loves us so much. And if this is a a subject that you want to explore some more, there's a book that I would recommend. It's a book by Elise Fitzpatrick called Because He Loves Me. And uh, I stole my wife's copy, kind of hid in the closet reading a girl book. But boy, it was refreshing to my soul. And I was convicted that I don't think enough about God's love for me. I'm always thinking about his sovereignty and his power and his wisdom and his, maybe his grace, his mercy, his justice, his immutability. And somehow just in my Christian experience, meditating on the love of Christ hasn't been my forte. And that'll sneak up on you in your Christian life because you'll end up trying to earn God's love through your own good works. The good day, bad day scenario kicks in where you're constantly wondering where you stand with God. And so I'd encourage you to read that because he loves me. It's all marked up. We need to get another copy, by the way. I gave our copy away. I'm still bitter at the guy that didn't give it back to me, but it's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive him. Just kidding. So what is this section about? Verses 34 to 39. It's about who will separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing, no one. And in, in, in the verses in between verse 35 and verse 39, it's kind of like a sandwich here. The question and the answer to the question. Paul provided a sample list of of, of adversities and adversaries that one might assume could potentially come between us and Christ. And he starts the list in verse 35. Will tribulation, trials and difficulties, will distress, the word is literally defined as being confined in a narrow space. In other words, if being hemmed in by our circumstances, we feel like the walls are closing in on us, we, we find ourselves in a tight spot, will we'll, we'll, tribulation, will distress, will persecution, suffering abuse and affliction from a hostile world that hates Christ and his followers, or, or famine, or nakedness, if, if we lack adequate food and clothing, or peril, some sort of dangerous situation, um, some sort of accident, or maybe health issue, cancer. I mean, you can fill in the blanks, by the way. Put, add whatever you want to this list. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to change Paul's point. You could add whatever you can think of in this list that you might have to deal with, some hardship, whether it's physical or financial or spiritual. You fill in the blank. It applies. Or sword. Even if you're put to death, not even death itself can separate us from God's love. I was talking to someone before the service and 
they said that they had the privilege of seeing a, a precious saint, a former member of our church who's now in glory, um, went to visit her when she was on her deathbed. And it was obvious just by the way she was laying there and that she was, she was dying. And so he read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. And while she couldn't communicate verbally, he said you could just see her body just responding with joy that that is true, that here I am about to die, but I know that even this won't separate, separate me from the love of Christ. And then Paul inserts this into this list, this verse. He, he quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22, for your sake, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That, for your sake, you may not be able to tell it here in the, in, in the New Testament translation, but it's, it's talking about for God's sake. Not, Paul's not saying, hey, for me, for your sake. You know, no, he's saying for your sake. For, for your sake, God, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And this was a, a reference to the suffering of the nation of, of Israel in Old Testament times for the glory of God. So that all the other nations would know that he is the one true God. And so Paul's point, why would he insert this random verse into this list is his point was that there's always been and there will always be opposition to God's work and God's people. Jesus promised that, John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. So we shouldn't be surprised by the suffering, the persecution that we experience. It's, it's nothing new. They're, they've always been, these things have always been characteristic of God's people. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in that great list of heroes of the faith, or appropriately titled in my Bible, Hebrews 11, triumphs of faith, we have this. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 36 Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and in holes in the ground. That's our heritage, by the way. Those are the heroes of the Christian faith. And so Paul implies here, I think, was implying that as, as Christians, we could be compared to sheep waiting in line to be slaughtered. That's a comforting thought, right? <laughs> but that's essentially the way we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And that's, that's who we are. That's the, that's the Christian life. We're, we're a bunch of sheep standing in line waiting to be slaughtered by the world because the world hates Christ. And because they hate Christ, they hate us. This is a reality, by the way, in the rest of the world. 70% of true believers, true Christians, live outside of the Western world. 
in places where their life is at risk daily because of their faith in Christ. The latest estimate that I heard is that over 400 Christians are martyred for their faith in Christ every day in our world. Over 400 a day. Christians being slaughtered for their faith in Christ. Well, little did the believers in Rome know when they first heard this letter read to them what lay ahead of them because just seven years after Paul wrote Romans, Nero, the Roman emperor at the time, unleashed a deadly wave of persecution against Christians. And if you remember, Nero uh, blamed the fire that destroyed uh, two-thirds of, of, of Rome on the Christians. Um, and so it's likely that some of the recipients of this letter, the original recipients of this letter, the people that were sitting in churches in Rome having this letter read to them were eventually impaled on poles and lit on fire and used as human tiki torches to light up Nero's garden parties. Or others were mauled by wild animals or killed by ruthless gladiators in the Colosseum. And even Paul himself was executed during, during this Period, period of Nero's persecution. But the question is, who conquered who? I mean, just look around. We're still here. The church of Jesus Christ, right, is worldwide. Last time I checked, there's no Roman Empire. See, Nero's rage against Christians was not enough to conquer the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul goes on to say. Verse 37, I love this. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's the New American Standards way of saying, or trying to translate, I guess, the Greek word hypernikeo. Kind of get the idea, the, the, just the Greek word hyper, right? Um. We overwhelmingly conquer. We don't just conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer. So this is, the, the, the word here is hyper victory or super conqueror. And so the idea is this is a, a complete conquest, a, a total rout, an easy win. It was over before it started. These things are no match for us. They pose no threat to us. Why? Because we're bound to win or we're destined to win. I know some of you TiVo games um, that you weren't available to watch at the time, so you TiVo them and then, you know, you watch them later and your buddies come up and you're like, I don't want to hear, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear, don't tell me, don't tell me, I want to watch it. And then they tell you anyway. And you find out your team won. Well, you still want to watch the game because you love your team, right? And so you're sitting there on the couch, and if you didn't know the outcome, I mean, you would be like sitting on the couch, like stressing out and throwing stuff and screaming at the, right? And, and, and go, your heart, your heart blood pressure's going, oh no, come on. You 
But if you know the outcome, it's like you're just kicking back, relaxed, feet up on the coffee table, eat some chips. Your team's down by 80 points. <laughs> cool, man. I can't wait to see this, how this is going to work out. This is going to be the, the, the uh, comeback of a lifetime. You're not stressed out at all. You're not afraid about anything. And even so, when we're taking a, a spiritual beating in life, rather than stressing out and complaining, we just need to relax and know that we're going to experience a glorious victory. Guess We know how this thing ends. Jesus wins. And if we know Jesus, guess what? We're on his team. And we win too. I wonder if the people that watch you live your life, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your coworkers, classmates, neighbors, would they consider you a conqueror? Or a worrier and a whiner. Sometimes Christians, we can, we can be the worst when it comes to worrying and whining about everything. Like seriously, we're the super conquerors. We, should, we need to live like that. With confidence and hope and trust and faith. We know how this deal works out. And so when you're watching Fox News or CNN and watching all the stuff that's going on in our country, and listen, Christians shouldn't be freaking out about it. We know God is in control and he's working out his purposes for his glory and our good and the ultimate return of Jesus Christ. And so while it's hard to see and it's, there's lots of hurt and pain and um, at the same time, there can be peace and joy in knowing that God's up to something good. Notice, though, in verse 37, but all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We don't triumph over all these things in our own wisdom, our own strength. We conquer them through the one who loves us. Reminds me of Galatians 2.20. How, how do we live the Christian life? Well, Paul said, this is how I live the Christian life. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, what? Loved me and gave himself for me. Again, this is... Um, I think so refreshing to remember that our confidence that we will make it home to heaven safe and sound is not in our fickle love for Christ, but in Christ's faithful love for us. It's like when we were teaching our kids to swim, and I'd be in the pool, and I'd say, hey, come jump to daddy, jump to daddy, come on, come on, you can do it, and they would jump to daddy, and man, they would just put a, a, a headlock, they'd land, Headlock around me, like, you can't hardly breathe, right? Because they didn't want to drown. They didn't want to go into the water. Well, what they didn't realize, they could have completely let go and they wouldn't have gone down. Why? Because daddy had them. 
It wasn't about how hard, how tightly they were holding on to me. It was how tightly I was holding on to them. Notice how Paul wraps this up. He says, for I am convinced. Notice I, I'm convinced. What Paul was saying here was not just theoretical, it was extremely personal, it was extremely practical. Why? Because he had faced all these things that he mentioned in these verses and not only survived every one of them, but triumphed over them. We don't have time to look, but if you were to look at 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 11, I mean, he, he, he experienced some stuff. <laughs> and, and it's amazing. Um, I mean, it's like he, he was on Shark Week and survived. That kind of, you know, I should have died, right? Kind of show. I mean, Paul could have, they had him a whole series and Paul would have been the, the, the character in every one of them, right? So based on his own personal experience, Paul was completely certain that none of these things had the power to, to sever the soul of a true believer from Christ. On the contrary, rather than detaching us from Christ's love or distancing us from Christ's love, these things actually draw us closer to Christ and conform us more to the image of Christ. Now let me say this, sin does separate us from God in that we feel distant from him. It affects our intimacy with him, does it not? But we should never think that God doesn't love us or that he's mad at us. Sometimes when bad things happen to us, I think we, we assume that God's angry with us and he's punishing us for our sin. Well, did you forget that he already punished Christ for your sin on the cross? Now, he may be disciplining you and correcting you and training you, but according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, that's evidence that he loves you. He's showing his love towards you. And so when you feel like you, you've been separated from the love of God, that you're in the doghouse with God, you need to remember his love hasn't changed. In fact, rather than sitting in judgment on your sin, which he does hate, by the way, he loves you so much that he has compassion on you and he empathizes with your weakness and he pities your sickness, which led to your sin. Work that out in your own mind and your heart. Hebrews chapter four, he's been there, done that. Obviously, he's never sinned, but he has pity on us. He empathizes, he sympathizes with our weakness, it says there. It's not like, um, oh, you did it again, you knucklehead. That's not God's heart. His heart is, oh man, I know how hard that is. I've been there. I know what the world's like. And uh, not that he overlooks it and says, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. But he has compassion on us and he, he hates the sin. Well, Paul, Paul is Paul and he just, when he got onto something, man, he just drove it 
into the ground, right? He, t- he started hammering a stake, man, and he was hammering that sucker till it disappeared in the ground. And, and, and so he was not done driving his point home yet. And, and so he ended the, the chapter by ransacking the universe for something, anything he could think of that might possibly separate us from the love of God. And so in these last two verses, he, 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 he wrote out a list of opposite extremes, To, to, to leave no doubt. That was his point, I think, here, is that, that he, he lets out all the stops, he lets it all fly, to leave no doubt in our minds that our salvation is eternally secure and that absolutely nothing can come between us and God. What are they? That neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, that's angels or demons, nor things present nor things to come, just time itself, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. This is space. And then, just in case he left anything out, or anybody might say, oh yeah, but what about this, Paul? He says, not any other created thing. Which includes everything except for who? God. Because he is the only uncreated thing. And Might I remind you that you are a created thing, I'm a created thing, and so not even we are able to thwart God's sovereign purpose for our lives or to separate ourselves from God's eternal love for us. He says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Don't miss that little phrase at the end. This magnificent reality about God's eternal, unconditional, inseparable love only applies to those in this category who can say that Christ Jesus is my Lord, that you've truly turned from your sin and you've submitted your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In other words, if, if Christ isn't your Lord and Savior this morning, you, you shouldn't walk out of here going, oh, wow, that's wonderful. Because this doesn't apply to you. But it can. Hopefully you're like, whoa, that's amazing. That's awesome. I want to get in on that thing right there. I want to be on that team. Well, you do it by confessing your sin, admitting that you're a sinner who deserves to die and go to hell but that God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in your place. And if you will stop trusting in yourself and your good works to make you right with him and get you to heaven and say, I'm just gonna trust in what Christ did for me on the cross alone and I'm gonna commit my life to follow and obey him as my Lord and Savior, then guess what? All this applies to you. There's some more things I wanted to share, but for the sake of time, I I just wanted to end this morning. We have been trying to sing a song that's appropriate, appropriate response to what we've just um, learned about or heard about. And there's a, there's a song that somebody sent me about a year ago, I guess, and I listened to it and then I honestly forgot about it. And then at the Worship God conference we went to a few weeks ago, the last message was uh, preached out of the book of Revelation. And, uh, they played the song. And I was like, oh, wow, I forgot that song. That's an amazing song. And uh, Kel and I have been wearing it out since, ever since. 
um, played it all the way home from uh, Kentucky and been playing it in the house. And, and uh, I want us to listen to this song this morning because it, it really captures a lot of the themes that we've been learning about in Romans 8 and, and just beautifully weaves them together with the glorious scene in Revelation chapter 5 where Christ is pictured as the lamb who is worthy um, the lamb who was slain and, 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 and is able to open up the seals and he, he purchased people from, for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation and everybody bows down and worships him as the, the worthy one. And what, I think what makes this song unique is, is like Paul did in this passage, the songwriter made his point through a series of not rhetorical questions like Paul was doing here, but more antiphonal questions where the song is, 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 is phrased in questions that, that are meant to be responded to. And it makes for a very worshipful song. And so let's worship Christ together as we listen to this song. And hey, if you know the song and you want to sing along in your heart or even out loud, you can do that as well. And then I'll come back and we'll close in prayer.
fun song to sing sometime, huh? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the only one worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And uh, we thank you um, for exposing us to the truth about him here in the book of Romans. I pray that these realities that we've looked at today would capture our hearts, would change our lives, that you would help us live our lives more and more by the power of your indwelling spirit and more and more enthralled by the unconditional, um, inseparable love that you have for us in Christ. May that be what motivates us, what drives us in life is, is not so much our love for you, but your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.